Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Heavenly Father, we know this. In these words, these simple words that we have to study today, there is powerful, not always easy, doctrine that you wish to teach us and affirm us in. And I pray that today we will do the work needed to know you better and to be grateful to you for who you are and what you've done. And I plead with you this, Lord. Never let a study of doctrine be a study of knowledge alone. Let it be a study that grows us in a deep love for you. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Quick uh, question to see how this first illustration will go. How many of you enjoy or at least know well the movie The Lion King? Good, because I was worried for about half a second right there. So, in the movie, The Lion King, Simba had a problem. He wanted to run, he wanted to hide from his identity. He wanted to hide from what he believed to be true of his past. His evil uncle had convinced him of a lie concerning his past, and because of that lie, Simba wanted to hide from responsibility and not be the true king, a whole Hakuna Matata type thing. But then there was a pivotal scene in the movie. The young lion encountered a monkey, a baboon, I believe he referred to. Was Rafiki a baboon? I don't know. Anyway, and this oddly witchcrafty baboon helps the lion in a pool of water to come across an apparition of his dead father, which you would think would be disturbing. And Mufasa, Simba's dead father, challenged Simba. Do you remember this? He looked at his son and he said, remember who you are. And when the young king was willing to live up to his identity, the story changed. Two weeks ago, I asked you if you know who you really are. How do you know who you really are? If you're a Christian you know that your true identity is not based in your feelings or in your wishes. If you are a Christian, even if you're not, honestly, your entire and true identity is found in what God says is true of you in his holy word. Remember that? Two weeks ago, we began to look at the letter of Paul to Titus. And in the greeting, we saw two big-time truths about who we are if we're in Christ. We are slaves of God under the authority of God's word. 
in verse 1, when Paul calls himself a servant of God, he uses the word for a slave. He's a willing slave, a joyful slave, a beloved slave, but a true slave of his heavenly master and Lord. And Paul calls himself an apostle who is one sent out by God with an authoritative message. That tells us that what we're reading from Paul right here is authoritative scripture. So Christian, you and I, if you're a Christian, we are slaves of God. We are beloved slaves. We can be joyful slaves. We are willing slaves. We are cared for by our master, but we are truly to be slaves of God if we are living up to our Christian identity. And we find out how do we serve our heavenly Lord? How do we please him? We find out in his holy word, the Bible. And now there's more. Today, we're going to continue our look at the greeting from Paul to Titus. And in it, we will find one more thing that's true of the identities of followers of Jesus. Which means at this pace, we'll finish the book of Titus around 2030. <laughs> we will speed up, I promise. But come with me today. And as Mufasa said to Simba, remember who you are. Let's learn from God's word. Let's see our true identity. Let's let it give us guidance and courage. So point number three. This is all one sermon. It's just going to take three weeks. Point number three. Does, how many of you are bothered that we're starting with point number three? Get over it. Get over it. Okay, so number three. We are the elect saved through faith. With the elect saved through faith. Titus 1, 1, just the last part of that last line says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, look at this, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. See, after identifying himself, Paul immediately gives us a sense as to what he is writing and why he does ministry. He is an apostle. He serves for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul has been sent out by God with God's authority to proclaim the truth of the good news of Jesus. Paul wants to proclaim this truth to all people everywhere. And Paul knows, he knows that as he proclaims the truth, God is going to bring the elect to saving faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul's saying here, this is actually super simple. Paul preaches so that God will bring the elect to saving faith and so that God will strengthen the faith of his elect. That's not even hard to understand, right? In Greek, the word that's translated here, elect, it's also translated often chosen. Chosen. In modern English, we still speak like this, by the way. In an election, you vote. You make a choice for one thief as compared to another. <laughs> we, we still say that someone elects to go to this college and not that college, right? Electing is a choice. You choose one. In the Bible, God uses the word elect or chosen to speak about different things. Israel is God's elect, chosen nation. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed and chosen one of God. 
But here, as Paul talks about the faith of God's elect, the word is clearly being used, quite particularly, to speak about the saved, the true people of God. So what I want you to understand is this. If you are saved by Jesus, part of your identity is that you are elect, chosen by God. Every single person who has ever been saved or will ever be saved has this as part of his or her identity. All of the saved are the chosen by God. Now, if you've been part of the faith for very long, you know that the doctrine of election, sometimes called predestination, is a doctrine that stirs many a discussion, maybe a debate among believers. People who love the Bible and people who don't love the Bible all have very strong opinions as to what the Bible says about God's sovereign election. And as we press on in Titus today, we've got the privilege to just take a look at this beautiful, controversial doctrine. I, um, it's interesting how many times in the last three weeks I've seen Christians discuss the doctrine of election. I had these notes mostly prepared several weeks ago, so nothing's based on any of those things I heard. It's just God's timing for God's church to talk about God's election. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, defines election as follows. And I've got a slide for you, so if you want to, if you care about the definition Grudem gives, we'll put it up there. Quote, Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. I'll read that again. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. I believe Dr. Grudem did a great job in the systematics book, helping us to understand the doctrine in a clear and honestly very gentle, sweet way. I want to borrow from his work to help us understand what it means when God calls the saved his elect. I'll give you four implications from that definition of what Dr. Grudem has told us. So first implication of that definition, what election means. Election is an act of God. This is God's doing, folks. And if election is God's doing, it is good and it is right. How do I know that? Psalm 1830 says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. What did that verse say about God's way? What is it? Perfect. Perfect. Hosea 14 verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. 
and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So God's ways are not only perfect, what else are they? Right. So if election is God's doing, it is perfect and it is right. Second, Grudem says to us that election took place before creation. This is not a thing that came later in history. Instead, God made this choice, this decision before time began. Thirdly, election is God choosing some people to be saved. Before time began, God chose a people out of all the mass of humanity. God chose a people to be his people, rescued from sin, redeemed, forgiven, sanctified, treasured, and glorified in his presence. Because not all people are ultimately saved, we understand that not all people were chosen by God, predestined for salvation. But, because all that God does is good and right, we know that God has not in any way wronged anyone not chosen. Fourth, the way that God elected some people to salvation has nothing to do with foreseen merit in the lives of those God has chosen. Rather, the act of election is something that God did based on his will. He did it based on his good pleasure. Election is not arbitrary. It doesn't depend on the one elected. It is fully based on the infinite wisdom and perfect will of Almighty God, a will that is always going to be done. Does God always ultimately do his will? Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In this instance, okay, all means all. Yes, ma'am. Now, for many of you here today, the doctrine of election is already clear and it's already lovely and I'm glad for you. But for some people, this might feel like new teaching. It may be hard to understand. So let's be sure that we do our very best to get it right. Now, in order for us to handle the doctrine of election, I want to answer for us two key questions. And I want to answer them from Scripture because if I answer them any other way, it really doesn't help. The first question is, does God's word actually say that the saved are elect, chosen, predestined? The second question is, is our election based on our choice or God's choice? Those are two important questions, right? The first one, an important question whenever you deal with any Bible doctrine is this, does the Bible teach it? Because we're not interested in doctrines folks come up with that aren't in the Bible, are we? No. Does the Bible refer to the saved as the elect? Does the scripture present to us the doctrine of election? Let's look at a few places where the Bible refers to this concept. Acts chapter 13, verse 48 and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Keep that verse up there. The gospel message was being preached. Many people believed. But 
tell me, according to verse 48, who believed as many as were what? Appointed to eternal life believe. The ones God had appointed to eternal life are the ones who believed. This, I think, hints at predestination, election to salvation. Romans 8, 28 to 30. You guys know this verse, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also, there's the word, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What happened to the predestined, Paul? And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These verses are sometimes called the golden chain of redemption. And they track our spiritual journey from beginning to end. And quite obviously, God predestined the saved to their salvation. He determined beforehand that they would be saved. He called them, he kept them, and he will ultimately perfect them, glorifying them as the word says. Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 6, you watch for the words. Even as he chose us, there's one, in him, Before the foundation of the world, there's that part of Grudem's definition, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he, there it is again, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Those verses speak about our salvation very clearly and they say that we are chosen and predestined by God for salvation. Now in point of fact, God repeatedly uses words like predestined and chosen or elect to describe the saved. If you want to write some others down, I'll give you a list. And this is not nearly exhaustive. In Romans eleven seven says the people of Israel who came to Christ are called the elect. In 1 Thessalonians 1.4, says he has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God chose you. 2 Timothy 1.9, God gave us grace before the ages began. 1 Peter 1.1 calls the people he's writing to elect exiles. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says you are a chosen race. Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 tell us that the names of the saved were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So, if you ask whether or not election is present in the New Testament, what's the answer? It is a, and I mean, again, I don't want to be mean to anybody who struggles with the doctrine because there's, there's another side to this you've got to struggle with. But is it there? The answer is absolutely, clearly yes. All through the New Testament, we see that those who were saved were chosen by God, elect by God from before the dawn of time. So question one is an absolute yes. So stop here and understand. If 
You are saved. Your salvation was predestined by God from before the ages began. God chose you. He elected you to be his adopted child. God planned your rescue and your welcome into his family before he ever even created the world. Now, what about my second question? This is the important question. Also, the first one's easy. Because all you got to do is find the word predestined and elect. It's there. Is our election based on our choice or God's choice? Because, see, those who study the Bible faithfully don't really disagree that God speaks of the saved as those whom he elected or predestined for salvation from before creation. After all, the words are clearly present in the Bible. When people debate this doctrine, the debate is one over how did God predestine us? And I want to give you two possibilities that people put forward as to how God chose those he chose for salvation from before the dawn of time. One view, you might call it the prescience view. If you want to write that word down, it's pre-science, P-R-E-S-C-I-E-N-C-E, but you say prescience to see something beforehand. This view, the prescience view, says that God chose people for salvation by, by looking into the future, seeing who would choose him by choosing Christ, and then writing their name down in the book of the predestined. The prescience view is God predestining, predestining or electing people based on him foreseeing they would choose him? You ever hear people suggest that as the way God predestines? God looked down through time and said, man, there is a Ben Bridges. That dude is messed up. But he's going to choose me, so whoo, I'll write him down. Alternatively, the Reformed view understands that God has elected some to salvation based on God's own holy purposes and not in any way based on their foreseen choices. The Reformed view, I think that's what we should call this, says election is based on God's choice, not ours. The Reformed view says God looked down in the future and said, there's that Ben Bridges, and he is really messed up. And I'm going to save him. And nothing will stop me from doing so. Oftentimes, those who are the proponents of the prescience understanding of election will use part of the golden chain that I put up here earlier for you to try to make their case. Romans 8, 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And the proponents of the prescience view, the man's choice view, the foreknowledge view, says, they say that, well, see, it says that God foreknew those he predestined. That must mean that God predestined based on his perfect knowledge of their future choices. God knew beforehand people would choose Jesus, so God marked them down as the chosen. God chose based on their right 
choice. That's the view I was taught as a child all my life, just so you guys know. The problem with this view is threefold. I'm going to give you three problems with that understanding of what it means when it says God foreknew and predestined. First, Scripture is clear that people who are lost lack any desire to choose God. Second, God is clear that no part of saving grace involves right action on the part of the saved. And third, it's just a flat misunderstanding of the meaning of the word foreknew. So, in answering the question whether or not God looked down the corridors of time, saw people who would choose Jesus and therefore chose them, we first have to ask, how does the scripture speak of those who need to be saved? Is there any possibility that lost humanity, left to ourselves, left free, would ever want God and the answer to that question, do you already know the answer to that question? No, we would never want God left to ourselves. Without God doing something, without God doing something supernatural in our hearts, none of us would choose God. And that's how I say to you, there's no way God chose us by foreseeing us choosing Him. Because we never would have done it. But let's let Scripture talk, right? John 6, 44. Jesus speaking here says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there Jesus says something really important. No one. Okay, okay you know all means all, right? What do you think no one means? No one. No one. Very good. <laughs> See, that's why she was such a good Bible teacher. No one, that is no human being whatsoever, can do something. No human being has the ability to accomplish a particular task. What is it? No human can come to Jesus without being drawn to Jesus by the Father. None of us can be saved without God drawing us. Now, here's the big question. What does it mean that God draws us? We'll look a lot more closely about this when we go back to John, uh, look at chapter 6. It'll be sometime first quarter of next year, I believe. But for now, let me tell you, the word for draw here in Greek is a word that means to forcibly move a thing. I want you to think of it as similar to how you use the word draw if you say that this person is going to draw his sword. If a, if a knight... I guess a knight has a sword, or a, I guess you could be a pirate, depending on what your whole you know, deal is. If he wants to draw his sword, what does he do? Does he say, oh, come on, sword, it'll be great if you're in my hand. <laughs> have any of you ever drawn a sword like that? You ever persuade a sword into your hand? No. What does a knight do if he wants to draw his sword? He grabs it, and he moves it by his force. The sword never moves itself. It must be moved by a person taking hold of it and dragging it out of its scabbard. And that is what Jesus is saying here. The Greek word would tell you, you cannot come to God unless God grabs you and forcibly moves you. 
Now, you might say, Travis, you're applying a foreign concept to Jesus' words. I want you to look in context at how Jesus explains what he meant. John 6, 65, same scene, same teaching in view. Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is, now look at what it says this time, unless it is granted him by my father, by the father. No one can, we know what that means, no one has the ability to come to Jesus unless that ability is granted him by God. God must give your coming to him to you as a gift or you will not come. One reason we know God did not look down the corridors of time and see who was going to choose Jesus and then say, I'm going to choose them, is this. If God doesn't do the saving, none of us would come to him. Romans chapter 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. Look at the next line. You tell me, who seeks after God? Who wants them some God? No one seeks after God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So who seeks God? The answer is nobody left to themselves seeks God. Nobody, not one. So if God simply looked down the corridor of time to see the free decisions of all humanity, what God would see is that none of them choose Jesus, not one. Scripture's clear. There is nothing inside the heart of a lost person to make that lost person want to come to God. We are dead in our sins, not alive to choose Christ. See Ephesians 2 for that. We know God did not just look into the future and predestine people based on them choosing Jesus because no person would ever choose Jesus on his own. People who are lost lack any desire, any motivation to choose God. Second, second problem with the prescience view. God is clear that no part of saving grace involves right action on the part of the saved. When the Bible speaks of salvation, it always speaks of salvation as a gift given to us by God, a work of God's grace. Scripture never allows any person even to take one single ounce of credit for his or her salvation. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Two things in those two verses. First, we're saved by grace through faith. Paul preaches for the sake of the faith of God's elect, Titus 1.1. All who are saved are saved through faith as opposed to being saved through being good or performing religious rituals. God counts our faith as righteousness by his grace for his glory. And before you get excited that, hey, at least you were smart enough to have saving faith, 
Paul says the faith that you have is a gift given to you by God. You're not saved by your goodness. You're not saved by your good decision making. You're not saved by doing good religious works. How do we know? Because God will not have any of us boasting of our own contributions to our salvation. Now, that sounds almost unfair, doesn't it? Would, God, would anybody really boast of their own faith? Doesn't that sound kind of crazy? I want to tell you about a man I knew about 15 years ago. It's been a while, but this story never has left my head. He was a deacon in a church, and he was teaching a Sunday school class, and he was talking to the class, and he said in exasperation to the class one day, I just don't understand how anybody could be so stupid as not to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, I understood what he was meaning. I mean, he was trying to say that the offer of grace and forgiveness is so good, so lovely. Anybody that would turn away from that must be crazy. But I was a little disturbed because there was a doctrinal problem going on here. He was hanging salvation on whether or not a person, one person might be smarter than another. So I asked him, I said, hey, I so desperately want to use his name, but I don't want, I'm not going to do it. I said, say that you and another man grow up, same town, same circumstances. Everything's the same. As close as it can be. You're saved. This man's lost. Are you telling me that you're saved because you were smarter than that man. You're telling me that you're saved because you were better than he is. And the man stopped and he thought about it. He said, I guess I'd have to be. That, that was a tragic, terrifying thing for that man to say. God says he will not allow us to boast in ourselves as we consider salvation. The view that says that God looked into the future, saw who would choose Jesus, and that's why he chose them, that's a view that says some people are at least smart enough, at least good enough, at least submissive enough to turn to Jesus, while others are not quite so good they're more stubborn, they're more sinful, and that is not the New Testament picture of salvation ever. Thirdly, the idea of God choosing us based on our choice misunderstands the meaning of the word foreknew in the golden chain. Some people clamp onto that phrase, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And they say that that proves God's predestining of individuals is based on his foreknowledge of their decisions. But this is a misunderstanding of what Paul's telling us. So let's, let's play a little logic here. Work with me. You guys still awaken with me, by the way? Yes. Okay, just checking on you because I can't tell. Let's, let's just take foreknowledge at face value. Let's say it just means knowledge. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. If foreknowledge only means foreknowledge, if that's all the word means, those God foreknew are predestined. Which of them, according to that verse? 
Does it say those whom he foreknew would do a certain thing, or does it say those whom he foreknew? It says those whom he foreknew, which means all of those God foreknew would be predestined. Again, assume foreknew just means basic knowledge. Whom does God foreknow in that sense? Kelly's correct. Could you hear her? She said everyone. Is there anybody whose existence God does not foreknow? No. God has total knowledge of all people and all the future. But wait, are all people saved? No. Thus, foreknew here must mean something other than a basic knowledge of their existence. A study of scripture would show you that God uses the word to know or knowledge in a different way than mere intellectual knowledge when he speaks of his people. I'm going to show you just one example because that's all we have time for that shows us here. God's going to speak about his nation. He's actually about to judge them, but it's the chosen people of God. Amos 3 verse 2. God says to Israel... You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God says of his people, you only have I known. What is God saying? Is God saying in Amos 3, 2, that he is only aware of the existence of one nation. And he has no idea who those other people are out there. Do you buy that? Of course not. God is saying that he has known Israel. They are his chosen nation. God has an intimacy with Israel that he did not have with other nations of that day. Known points to relationship. By the way, go back in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived do you believe that there the word no is just used as knowledge of her existence? No. That word is a word pointing toward an intimate relationship. In this instance, don't, don't, don't get weird here, but what it means is God chose Israel to be his special nation. Now go back to the golden chain with me, please. Whom... Does God predestine only the ones God for beforehand knew? He foreknew them. He forechose them. Only those with whom God foreordained a relationship did God predestine, call, justify, and later glorify. Foreknew in the golden chain means that God chose them beforehand. It has nothing to do with God choosing based on their goodness or their good decisions. It has everything to do with God predetermining that God would have a unique relationship with the saved. 
So God elected people to salvation, and that election was not based on their future decisions because we never would have chosen the Lord on our own. God never would have planned a salvation where we could give ourselves credit in any way as we compare ourselves to the lost. And the attempt to use the word foreknew in the golden chain to argue for the prescience view does not hold water. So hear me. If you are saved, you are elect. And if you are elect, it is not because God foresaw your right decision making. If you're elect, you're elect because God chose to set upon you his unique perfect saving love god chose to save you by his grace through faith and then god chose to give you faith as a gift to save your soul this of course is the reformed understanding of election grudem said election is an act of god before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. What should this do for you? How do you respond to being elect? First, respond with humble gratitude. That sounds about right, doesn't it? You know, I'm looking at my notes here, and I've got a mistake here. I was about to say, you brought nothing to the table to cause your salvation. But that's not true. You brought sin. You brought the need for salvation. I guess you want to brag about that when you can. You brought nothing to the table to cause God to save you. You were dead in your sins. That God would choose you is an act of God's perfect kindness toward you. So thank him. Take no pride in your own goodness. Any goodness you have comes from God. Second, respond by resting in the Lord. If God elected you to salvation, he's not going to lose you in the future. Aren't you glad about that? If God saved you, God will keep you, no matter what this world takes from you. Because the world around you wants to take away a lot of your freedoms and a lot of your focus on the Lord. But this world can never take from a genuine Christian your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Third, respond with confidence in evangelism. If God has elected people to salvation evangelism is ultimately guaranteed to reap a harvest. Y'all, there are people in this world who need to be saved and are gonna be saved. It's not your job or mine to force somebody into the kingdom. You don't, you don't have to persuade somebody because you're super clever. You don't have to be cool to persuade somebody into the kingdom. You don't bring somebody into the kingdom with your goodness and you don't drive somebody out of the kingdom because of your struggles. Your job and my job is to tell people, to present the gospel to everybody everywhere. We offer the grace of God to everybody all over the world and get this, the elect will respond. 
Paul said, I preach, I write for the sake of the faith of God's elect, Titus 1.1. And fourth, respond with love. If you are saved, God has loved you and chosen you. And he did it for his own reasons. And that should give you great, great joy. The God of the universe treasures you. The God of the universe sacrificed his own son to save you. There's no greater truth you could ever know. There's no greater love you could ever experience. Love the Lord who has loved you so perfectly. What if you're here and you don't know the Lord? What if you're hearing this message and you don't yet know the Lord? Should all this election talk make you feel that you have no hope? No, not at all. Talking to the lost here. God has put forth a global command that all people everywhere are commanded to repent and believe in Jesus. Acts 17.30, global command. God has said that anybody who comes to Jesus in repentant faith will be saved. John 3, 16, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 and 13. Don't fear whether you're elect or not. Just turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. And listen to me, if you're willing to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, you can know that God has already done the work of salvation in your heart. And yes, God has chosen you. Similarly, Christian, don't worry about trying to figure out who is or isn't elect. You preach the gospel, you proclaim the gospel, you Keep telling people because the elect will eventually respond. 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 4 and the beginning of verse 5 we'll put up here. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Whoa. How in the world, Paul, would you know that God has chosen these people? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. When Paul wrote to the people of Thessalonica, which is probably the first New Testament letter Paul wrote, Paul pointed out that he and his companions knew God had chosen those people for salvation. And how did Paul know? He knew because they responded to the gospel in faith. Now, I want to be sensitive to this last piece, but I don't have time to give it a long hearing. What about the question of the goodness of God in election? Remember this, all, all, all of the ways of the Lord are perfect and all of the ways of the Lord are right. God is holy God has never caused anyone to sin. And God doesn't turn people from himself. Ultimately, here's what you've got to grasp. If any person is unsaved, it's because that person has freely chosen 
to oppose God and reject salvation. If any person is saved, it is because God has granted them supernatural mercy to bring them to himself. In both instances, God is perfectly just and perfectly right. So Christians, we're three points into this look at who we are. We're slaves of God. We're under the authority of God's word and the elect saved through faith. Remember who you are. Believe what God says about you. Rejoice in the gospel of Christ and surrender even today to his lordship. Let's bow. Let's pray. Father, you know how difficult this doctrine can be for some. You know how hard it is for our minds to wrap themselves around your truth. But here it is for us. I pray, God, that you will teach us to surrender to you. I pray that you will help us submit to your word. I pray that you will help us to trust you where we don't understand. I pray that you'll give us wisdom to understand beyond our ability. I pray for the lost who hear this message that they will not worry about eternity past, but instead think about eternity future, that they will turn from sin, be drawn by you, be saved by grace, and rejoice in Christ. I pray for the families and for the children of those who are here who trust in you and who deeply and desperately want sons and daughters to be saved. Pray, God, your kingdom will come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, be glorified. Be magnified. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.